Welcome to The Rep. This is Julie Cortez. On June 13, 2019, I sat down with Lavina Jadwani, Oregon Shakespeare Festival Fair alum and director of our 2020 production of Peter and the Starcatcher. Welcome back, Lavina. Thank you. It's good to be back. Can you start off by telling us a bit about Peter and the Starcatcher, including its origins and, you know, what it is now? Yeah. So Peter and the Starcatcher is a play with music that celebrates the origins uh, of a myth that is well known, which is the myth of Peter Pan. And it is adapted from a book and was written for a very specific acting company, I think, when it originally premiered, which is what got me really excited about doing this play here. Um, I know lots of people have uh, such a strong connection to the original production, and I'd heard so much about it. And I'd heard so much about the aesthetic of it, because I think the aesthetic of this play as originally done is an aesthetic that's very similar to my Chicago theater roots. Um, So this play for me felt like a combination of so many amazing things including uh, the sort of scrappy, imaginative, playful storytelling aesthetic with an incredible acting company, um, in this case being the OSF acting company. You know, I only... I'd only ever read the book for this play with the OSF acting company in mind. So it's still early. We're still uh, in the middle of the casting process, but there are certain actors that I just went, oh, of course, in of course, it's this person when I was reading uh, the play. And so I'm so excited to be thinking about how this play can both celebrate a myth that is very well known um, and means so much to so many of us in terms of this idea of where do we find home and how do people grow up um, and also just celebrate this, I think, uh, Louis Dauphin always just said, right, this pound for pound, the best acting company in the country. And I, I think she's not wrong about that. So I'm really excited that all of these things that are are so important to me feel like They're mashing up in this beautiful homecoming for me as a first-time OSF director, but a previous company member. And it's set in a, you know, kind of a period time, but there's a a mixing, right, of references. Yeah, we've been talking about, you know, my work is very language-driven, and so I always start by examining the language of the play, and this is a play that is very clearly set in the time of Queen Victoria. It is sort of a a running joke that we always say, Queen Victoria, God save her, Um, but that also talks about um, BVDs and and Ayn Rand, and so it's very much a... um, period play through a contemporary lens, which again, I think is what Shakespeare did. You know, when we look at plays like Julius Caesar, it's both then and now. And so is this play. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is kind of appealing for a rather wide potential audience, correct? I think so. My good friend, Addie Gorlin uses the term all ages theater. And I've, I've become sort of obsessed with that term because I think that, you know, especially here at OSF, we think about access in so many ways. But um, one of the ways that I am learning uh, that I can really talk about access in terms of this piece is the fact that it is a piece that's accessible to audience members of all ages. And I think there's going to be so many different things that so many different people find funny. And I'm really excited to lean into that. I think I was just reminded when I was seeing shows in the Bomer last night that, you know, the audiences here are some of the best listeners in the world and you all have incredible senses of humor. And so I'm really excited to find out um, what these audiences want to celebrate in this myth as well. 
like when we were talking earlier, you described it as childlike, but not childish. Yeah, childlike, but not childish. I do think that um, there's a sophistication to the storytelling in this piece, if only because, you know, and it's what good theater and and good novels do, right, is they give you a couple of data points and then they let you um, bring your imagination, be it as an artist, be it as an audience member, to fill out the rest. Um, and I think that that's so exciting. We've been talking a lot about, you know, when J.M. Barry described the original Peter Pan. It's so funny because we have, I think, uh, certainly uh, as an American society, so many ideas about like what that looks like. And all that J.M. Barry really described is, is Peter's smile. And there's so many other things that could round out that smile. And um, I'm really excited to, to celebrate that idea of imagination and, and what if. And how does imagination kind of come into how this production will come together? The play is written wants to travel to so many places, so many fictional places, and doesn't really want to literally go from point A to point B. You know, um, the first half of this play is almost entirely set on ships and is so much about the journey. And I think this is a world where much like when you were traveling someplace for the first time, you sort of can't see everything around you or, or things are sort of mysterious. Neverland, I guess it's called Neverland. Um, and so I think this production as originally written and, and certainly through the lens of our acting company and design team, I think is going to ask people to bring a lot of themselves to the work and to bring a lot of their own creativity in terms of, okay, here's a piece of the ship and, and you will have one specific idea about what the rest of the wasp looks like. Um, and I will have a different one too. And like, how cool is that? That both of those things can exist. Let's talk a little bit about music and how yeah. that works um, in this world and um, the distinction of a play with music versus a musical and then just um, the kind of heightened storytelling involved in this piece. So Peter and the Starcatcher is, I think, what we would technically call a play with music as opposed to a traditional musical. Um, there's only about five or six songs, performative songs in the piece. And then there is, though, a lot of playoff music, a lot of interstitial music, um, a lot of moments where the two musicians, so keyboards and percussion, basically, that are um, part of the company, they do a lot of Foley work. So it's, it's interesting. It's not like a traditional musical in a way, but I think that like a musical, there's so many moments where the storytelling is elevated beyond spoken text. And that might mean that this character now, uh, speaks in song, but it might also be that they now use, you know, a heightened physicality to tell a story. It might be that this is now, uh, I think I think fights are elevated dance, right? So it might be that as well. Um, so those are the things that I really enjoy about the play. Um, you know, and it's funny because um, I think that, again, Shakespeare does a lot of that as well. You know, so many of those plays have so much music and so much dance and that kind of heightened storytelling. So uh, for me, it feels it feels in those worlds as well. Mm -hmm. So you'll be directing this in a Jubilee year. Yeah. And you are... A core producer, I think you call core it a core producer. producer of Jubilee. So can you talk, can you, um, for those who, who might not know who are listening right now, um, explain a little bit about what Jubilee is and how you got involved in kind of how you're, you've been 
kind of delving into what it means to be a director at times of canonical texts at, like this at, in, in a jubilee year. <laughs> so the jubilee is a movement that uh, asks the question, what if there was a year-long nationwide theater festival featuring work generated by those who have historically been excluded, including but not limited to artists of color, Native American and indigenous and First Nation artists, women, non-binary and gender non-conforming artists, LBGTQIA2 plus artists, deaf artists and artists with disabilities. So um, that question caught my eye maybe in 2015 um, when I first saw uh, the first piece about the Jubilee on HowlRound and I thought, oh my gosh, well, of course I want to be a part of that. And so I, I more officially got involved with the Jubilee at the end of, I think it was 2018 or 2017. Hmm. Um, but there was a retreat in Boston and um, many of us met up to sort of re-articulate the vision of the Jubilee. And our hope is that the Jubilee is that that question is a framing question, certainly for the 2020 or 2020, 2021 season, right? Depending on if you do calendar years or, or sort of, um, I don't know, a different kind of season. Um, but I think, you know, the question that emerged for me when we were talking about uh the movement back at that retreat in Boston, it was the end of 2017, um, was this idea of who within the dominant framework of your institution, who are the marginalized voices and how can you lift them up? And I think that that, that question, I feel like just, again, so speaks to my, my personal mission and is a question that I think that we can all constantly be asking ourselves because I think we can all be better advocates. I think we can all be doing more intersectional work. Um, you know, I know for me as an Asian American artist, it meant, oh, well, gosh, you don't, I don't have to think about advocating for Asian American artists. It, it's just, it's part of my work. I don't, I don't have to think about that. It's like breathing, but just because I am naturally advocating for that community doesn't mean that there are other communities I can't also be advocating for. Um, so that's what I really appreciate about the movement is that I think none of us get to say, oh, okay, we're already doing these things. So like, I'm good. Right. I think the question for me is about, um, yeah, how can we all be doing better? And every time I'm asked to speak to a young group of artists or an emerging group of artists, um, I always ask the question, like, who who are you going to the mat for, right? Because I think, and it's in my bio, but like, I think, you know, being an artist is to be an activist and to be an advocate. And I didn't really realize that until I came here because I, you know, being at OSF, my, my career has been so Chicago-based um, to that point, and I think will continue to be, but, um, you know, being at OSF was was such a, a door opener for me, especially in terms of, like, how people in other parts of this country make work. And, um, yeah, this idea of, of who do you go to the map for, that, like, we as artists, everything we do is an act of advocacy, even if that means, you know, who I hire on my design team. We do have an all-female design team on this production. That wasn't something I set out to do, but as I was looking at the people I wanted to work with and people whose visions and senses of humor were in line with mine, that's how that happened. And I'm so excited about that because I do think that's also an act of advocacy is when people, like, look at that the tech tables that we will have in the Bomer in the spring of 2020 and go, oh, this is what people who make a play look like. Cool. Um, I think that's also that's also a statement and, and we can do that while also making really awesome plays. And what does it mean to be doing plays by sorry, I'm gonna start over. Um, 
what is what have been some kind of the conversations you've had around classic texts, um, like and classic plays in this season? That's another reason I wanted to get involved with the Jubilee. Is um, I always tell people I either do um, very old plays or very new ones, um, and uh, I'm somebody who loves canonical work. I mean, especially Shakespeare. I'm also working on a doll's house this season. Um, I think that the plays are, are very good and have you know stood the test of time for a reason. But I also think a lot of, I always say when I'm working on Shakespeare that, you know, those plays were written to be performed by a very particular, relatively homogenous group of people. And that was then, but this is now, and I don't think they should be performed by a homogenous group of people in any way now. Um, and so I, I am so interested and excited and intrigued by uh, the combination of those two worlds. And I think especially um, for artists of color, I know it was true for me, um, a lot of Shakespeare training in our country is still done through a colonial lens. It still starts with... Um, language that puts people in a place that gets them thinking about getting it right as opposed to bringing the text alive, right? We so often start with the meter, but bump, 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 And it's like, well, okay, but like if I can clap on the two and the four, maybe I don't need to start there, right? Maybe I can start with some other things. Um, the language, the ideas, the humanity. And um, so uh, anyway, that was one of the other reasons I wanted to get involved with Jubilee is because I think, you know, those questions a lot of times we we naturally think about those questions when we're doing new plays. And I think some people who um, don't love canonical plays in the way that I do go, well, okay, well then we just leave those plays be behind because they don't serve us anymore. But um, I think they can. And I think especially, you know, as somebody who is a director and is adapt an adapter, um, I, I think that if I'm adapting or directing a Shakespeare play through my particular lens, I, I think then that is also part of the world of the play. And so I think, yeah, it fit, fits with the Jubilee's mission. We don't just throw out that play because, you know, William Shakespeare was, as far as we know, and a dead white guy. Mm -hmm. And how is your, your lens and how it intersects with Jubilee kind of informing um, how you're approaching Peter and the Starcatcher? I don't know, because I think uh, in so many ways, the Jubilee's lens and, and my lens feel so in line that, um, I don't know, it just, it feels really organic. It doesn't feel like I'm directing this play in a different way because it's a Jubilee year. And I, I don't think that's what the Jubilee is asking people to do. I do think for me, and you know, this is the first play in 2020 that I'm doing so far. I do think what it means for me as, as an individual artist, because I work with a lot of theaters in the country is it means that the other theater companies that I will be engaging with in the 2020, 2021 season, uh, I'll be asking them, Hey, I took this pledge. I am on board with this idea. Are you also on board with this idea? If so, cool. Let's talk about how this project we might want to do together is in line with this idea. And if you're not, maybe we don't work together this season, but also like maybe we don't work together. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has to be working on the same thing at the same time, but this is what I'm working on right now. So I appreciate the specificity of the Jubilee's lens. Mm -hmm. And um, the the book that it's based on, Peter and the Star Catchers, was mm -hmm. more focused on Peter, while it, whereas this, the play, is more Molly's story? I think so. So um, Rick Ellis, who wrote the book for Peter and the Star Catcher, singular, which is the play that we are doing, talks about why he wanted to get rid of the S because the book is originally Peter and the Star Catchers and um, because he wanted to 
he wanted the title to include uh, Peter and Molly, boy and Molly, I should say. When we meet the character that we now know as Peter Pan, um, he doesn't have a name, and so the character's name is Boy at the beginning of the play. And um, yeah, I've been I've been reading the book right now, which is is so funny, and there's so much gorgeous information about all of the characters. Um, but it's very funny because I. Uh, I was not familiar with the book prior to reading the play. Some people were. I, I read the play first and then the book. And what I, one of the many things I love about the play is that it is so clearly Molly's story. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, I keep describing her as like the Hermione Granger of the play. She's this, um, she's described as like insufferably bright and very confident in her leadership skills in a time and place and world that says, no, no, a leader doesn't look like you. And that's something I have a lot of experience and a lot of skin in the game with. Um, but yeah, so the book, the book is very much Peter's story, but I really appreciate the balance and focus of the theatrical adaptation. I think it's going to be really exciting, especially building off of the momentum of the 2019 season when you have amazing Rosalinds and Alice's um, in the season. It's it's that's also exciting to me. I'm going to um, Helena. That's what I couldn't think of. Anyway, I'm going to read a, a couple of quotes, some direct and some just kind of cobbled together <laughs> oh, no. from our earlier conversation. Uh, no. no, no, these aren't those. Don't worry. <laughs> We'll, we'll leave everybody in suspense about what we're, <laughs> what we're laughing about. But um, that I'm just hoping maybe you can give a little more context for because they were so lovely. You talked about some um, some approaches um, that were an attempt to mine for more truth and mm. quote unquote expensive comedy. And I thought that was really interesting. And I also just loved that everybody can and should be a mermaid. So yeah. um, could you talk a little bit more about both of those? So my, my conversation with um, Bill Rausch about this play began from him saying, so Peter and the Starcatcher as originally performed was written with an acting company that only had one uh, female artist in it. And that was the actor playing Molly and that the other actors, uh, regardless of what characters they were playing, those actors identified as male. And that was the specific lens through which the play was originally produced. And I do think the language does reflect that. Um, but Bill was more interested in doing this play through a more gender inclusive lens. And I was too, again, I, I sort of only ever read and imagined this play with the OSF acting company in mind. But I think one of the things we're finding um, through that more inclusive lens of storytelling is that there are some moments in the play where it feels like, I mean, I guess much as in Shakespeare, where the the comedy is a little more, uh, I don't want to say cheap, I'll say affordable, you know, where the truth is, um, uh, is that when we're asking an audience to watch a, a man playing a woman, there's a certain depth uh, of that humor that I think that we can sort of extend when we're allowing the actors who are going to play those roles to like bring more of themselves to the work. I think, um, you know, this, this thread of, of female leadership, I think between uh, Lady Astor, Molly, uh, the character teacher who is a mermaid, Queen Victoria, who's not seen but is often referenced in this play. You know, that idea came, again, out of thinking about this play with OSF actors in mind. Um, and yeah, the top of Act 2, I don't know, spoilers, involves a big fancy mermaid number that I think as originally written um, 
hinged on a lot of drag to inform the world, but I think re-envisioning the play here and now, you know, we're excited to think about what a mermaid might look like. And yeah, right. It's a fictional character. So anybody can be a mermaid. Um, so I think we're really excited again. We'll know more as we know what our cast looks like, but I think the idea again of imagination of play of wonder, I think all of those things are, are so inclusive. Um, the original creative team, when they talk about the casting of this play, um, they talk about the fact that, okay, well, everybody plays a mermaid and a pirate and a sailor because the play is fundamentally a celebration of allness. Uh, and I really love that idea. I feel like that feels very true to my experiences of OSF. And you have an all female creative team. We do. Yeah. Um, our, uh, scenic costume, lighting, sound designers and choreographer and myself are all women. You said that was kind of by accident, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, uh, I rarely set out saying, oh, I want my creative team to look this way. Um, it was about, um, you know, who do I want to work with? Who do I think gets this play? Um, a lot of the creative team also has Chicago theater roots, which feels important to me because, you know, I'm a Chicago theater artist. And I think that like, again, that, that the sort of scrappiness and imagination of storytelling that feels inherent to this piece feels so Chicago to me. Um, and is, I mean, it's also probably true for lots of places, but I was interested in working with people who sort of got that aesthetic. Um, so really it came from there. Some of it is repeat relationships. Tanya Burl, who's, who's our choreographer, she and I just had an amazing collaboration at the Guthrie. Uh, Sarah Huey, uh, who's my line designer. Um, this is like our fourth, it'll be our fifth show together. And she's been the backbone of so many of my creative teams the last few years. And um, we know each other from Chicago, but she now lives in Portland, but has never worked at OSF and has always wanted to. So um, I was really excited to be able to invite her along to work with me on this play. So Lavina, why this play at this theater at this time? Uh, I mean, I think because it's tremendously fun. Um, I think because again of this idea of allness that uh, I was talking about. And I think because this play really for me investigates the idea of, of growing up and the idea of what does it mean to find a home? And again, I think that those ideas and those questions are things that we will interrogate and re-interrogate throughout our lives. I also, I really love that everybody in this play, I think of myself as somebody with a pretty strong moral compass and like sense of, of justice. And I really appreciate that every character in this play, even if, if they are, you know, a soldier, a sailor or a pirate, everybody has a strong sense of that code, even if it is, I'm a pirate, so there are no rules. Um, and so I, I really love that because I think, especially for the characters like, um, Black Stash and boy who become, uh, hook and become Peter. I think it's so exciting to see, again, the play is an origin story. So it's so exciting to see, how who they are, like what is essential to those people gets us to what makes them iconic in terms of these characters that we we feel like we know from so many contexts. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we sign off? I'm just so excited to be here. I think, uh, I think again, we're going to have a, a tremendous amount of fun making this play. And I, I hope that people have a tremendous amount of fun seeing it as well. I think that, uh, the play I think can be both 
uh, joyous and mystical. And I'm really excited about that. Well, and I'm really excited you're back, Lavina. Yeah. Thank, thank you thank so you. much for taking this time. Yeah. And that's it today for The Rep. Follow the rest of the series for more exciting interviews on our 2020 season. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at OSF Ashland. <laughs>